Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, police attacks on journalists covering the historic nationwide anti-police brutality protests are shocking and appalling. Will they lead reporters to back off, covering racial injustice from a safe distance? Or will they encourage them to work more deeply and consistently to amplify precisely those voices that the forces of order, as CNN called them, so vehemently want to silence? A lot depends on which course they take, both for racial justice and for journalism. We'll talk with Alicia Bell, organizing manager with the group Free Press. Also on the show, it's hard not to fixate on the end of the nightmare that is the Trump presidency, but we do need to remember that just as there was a lead-up to Trump, there will be a legacy, one powerful part of which will be the judicial appointments, nearly 200 so far, he's made to courts around the country. People for the American Way has been tracking Trump appointees and the impact they're having on issues from abortion rights to, well, police accountability. We'll talk about the project, Confirmed Judges, Confirmed Fears, with Elliot Mintzberg, Senior Fellow at People for the American Way. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at recent press. More than half of lower-income adults say they or someone in their household has lost work as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, virtually no low-income households have any emergency funds to tide them over. One estimate has nearly a quarter of all U.S. households at risk of eviction or foreclosure. And all of that is worse for Black and Hispanic households. You can learn all of that from reporting in major news outlets. But as Julie Holler writes for FAIR.org, describing hardships and even their unequal distribution is one thing, but acknowledging efforts to rectify them is very much another, and corporate media seem intent on ignoring serious popular proposals that would prioritize those hardest hit, including communities of color and the poor. The People's Bailout, for instance, endorsed by hundreds of progressive groups and almost 100 members of Congress, calls for Congress to adhere to five principles in crafting COVID-19 relief packages. Health is the top priority for all people with no exceptions. Economic relief must be provided directly to the people. Rescue workers and communities, not corporate executives. Make a down payment on a regenerative economy while preventing future crises. Protect our democratic process while protecting each other. It calls for regular direct cash payments, free and accessible testing, treatment, and PPE, and a halt to evictions, foreclosures, and water and electricity shutoffs. Since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been only two mentions of the people's bailout in leading national news outlets, both in the Washington Post's coverage of Earth Day. Holler found zero mentions in the New York Times, L.A. Times, USA Today, NPR, or the TV news networks. An April 13th letter to Congress, signed by a long list of national, state, and local organizations, including Oxfam America, the NAACP, and the AFL-CIO, 
called for $500 billion in unrestricted aid to state, local, territorial, and tribal governments. In addition to payroll guarantees, continued unemployment insurance payments, another round of cash payments regardless of immigration status, stronger worker protections, and full funding for frontline workers' health and safety. Not a single leading network or newspaper reported on this letter. These aren't wild ideas. Even the Bipartisan National Governors Association called for $500 billion in aid to states. But their call has gotten far less attention than Trump's top economic relief priority, a suspension of payroll taxes, which would provide little in the way of economic relief, particularly to the unemployed who are no longer paying such taxes, but would seriously endanger the Social Security program it funds. Yet, in the seven weeks since the Governors Association put out its call, media outlets ran only 35 stories that mentioned it, compared to 95 for Trump's payroll tax cut proposal. A recent fair study of the network's Sunday morning political talk shows found that the guests, given a platform to shape the discussion around both public health and economic strategies during the early weeks of the pandemic, were overwhelmingly government officials. Independent public health experts and especially public interest groups were sidelined. It comes as no surprise that by sidelining those voices, media sideline real solutions to the inequality and hardship they pretend to care about. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Human rights, civil liberties, and journalist groups are joined in outrage at U.S. police targeting members of the media, covering protests sparked by the police murder of African-American George Floyd. Targeting because journalists are not being swept up in assaults by police on protesters, which are themselves horrific, but are being individually shot at with rubber bullets and pepper balls, tear-gassed and beaten, even after showing credentials. Well over a hundred of such violations of press freedom have been collected as of June 3rd. How is being treated as the enemy of the people that Trump and his supporters have long labeled them affecting reporters' relationship to the issues and the people they're covering? Though it seems to have subsequently shifted tone, CNN was still issuing headlines like protesters face off with the forces of order, even as its own reporters were being wrongfully arrested. What's clear from these violent, unconstitutional attacks is that some forces of order will fight to prevent media amplification of voices protesting their brutality. That could chill reporters or bring them into closer solidarity with over-policed communities, whose stories so obviously need telling. Alicia Bell is organizing manager with the group Free Press, working on the News Voices Project. She joins us now by phone from North Carolina. Welcome to Counterspin, Alicia Bell. Hi, Janine. Thank you so much for having me on here. Well, people are talking about First Amendment rights as well they should be, but it isn't just that reporters have a legal right to cover protests from up close. They have a journalistic responsibility to do so, you could say. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the common expectations of journalism, both from journalists and from, from people engaging with journalism, is that, that journalists are, are speaking truth to power. I've heard a lot of different journalists in newsrooms talk about either 
amplifying voices of people who are not often given a platform. And so it absolutely makes sense that they would be doing this work right now and have a duty to be covering and telling the stories of these protests and different organizing efforts that are happening in cities across the world. Well, the particular violation, and it really is shocking, you know, to see police attacking journalists. And it's important, I think, to talk about that in itself and respond to it on its own. But we know that this now is not a story about reporters. You know, we know that reporters covering Mm -hmm. a Tea Party protest or a Trump rally would not be beaten up or shot at. So it's clearly about who they were trying to give voice to. Absolutely. Um, I think it it absolutely has to do with the fact that they are amplifying voices and showing the, the faces and showing video and lifting up demands from communities of color, from working class communities, from queer and trans communities, all the different identities that black and brown people hold. Those are the folks who are showing up on the streets that are showing up in protests of police brutality and of police violence, which is a centuries old issue in the United States. And so it does make sense that for the people who are trying to amplify the voices of people who are resisting police violence, that the police might not be too happy about that and would want to try to to shift that and shut that down, as opposed to someone who's protesting and is wanting to lift up, give more power to policing, give more power to various government bodies. But for the people who aren't doing that, which is people right now, then the police have a stake in shutting that down. Well, folks talk about building relationships between the police and the community, and they can mean all kinds of things by that. You've said this moment underscores the importance of relationship building between newsrooms and communities. I wonder if you could talk a little about the value of that and and how do you facilitate that? There's often conversations about the future of journalism and the future of news. And um, when we think about journalism and news as an institution and an infrastructure in our communities, then what we know is that when our communities are stronger and our communities are more powerful, institutions and infrastructure within our communities are also stronger and more powerful. And the same thing goes for news and for journalism. But in order for journalists to really be accurately and adequately informing community needs and information needs, And in order for them to tell the stories of communities in ways that are authentic and genuine, then you you have to have a a conversation. And you're going to have a deeper conversation. You're going to have a deeper reporting when you're in relationship with someone. And then the same thing goes with any kind of relationship, right? If we walk up to, to someone randomly on the street and want to ask them about some of the most intimate moments, most important political moments of their lives, we're less likely to get really rich, deep conversation. Mm-hmm. But when we're in conversation and with people that we have relationships with, that we've, we've established relationships with, then it's, there's going to be so much more variety, so much more nuance. And the way that we build those relationships, the way that we are encouraging journalists to build those relationships is really the same way that you build and sustain any relationship. If somebody only comes into your house and eats food out of your refrigerator and doesn't say hello, doesn't ask how you're doing, doesn't give anything back, you're rightfully going to be frustrated. So if journalists are only coming into communities, especially communities of color, black and brown communities, who have often been marginalized by newsrooms and are only 
taking information and taking quotes from people instead of asking how they're doing, being present in different community spaces, then the relationship is is not going to happen. So right now, in this immediate moment, those are some of the ways that journalists can be building relationships. They can also be asking different people on the ground from various community institutions, organizations, non-organizations, what do you need? What questions do you have right now? What can we get answers to that you might not get answers to? And do the work of answering those questions and providing that information. Yeah, yeah. And the the depth and the complexity of the understanding seems to me like it's going to be so especially important going forward on this case when we know that folks will be trying to divide community against itself, you know, by saying, Mm -hmm. these people are good protesters, these people are Antifa, you know, and (laughs) for reporters trying to navigate that, you have to have some footing, you have to have some grounding within the folks that are going to be talked about. The parachuting in, you sometimes hear about journalists parachuting into a problem, which is what you're talking about with, you know, when you just walk up to somebody You don't get the full story, and I think also from the point of view of the reader, it truncates the time frame, it distorts the story by making it an arc, you know, with a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, there's a protest, and there's a police response, then maybe there's a legal response, and then it's over. But of course, we know that racial injustice is an everyday story. It doesn't arise and peak and then dissipate, you know, but in in a way... Sometimes it's just the way journalists approach a story or the tools they're given to get at a story that seem to work against really getting that complex understanding that you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think if we're thinking about some of the things that folks are are protesting right now and when folks are protesting policing and and police violence and state-sponsored violence, it's really a protest of of extraction of how have you extracted people and power from my communities. And so for journalists, I think it's important to not continue that same habit of extraction because that extraction, that puts you in solidarity and in alignment with folks who are perpetuating state-sponsored violence. It's the same kind of tactic, just in a different shape and a different form. But instead to think of how can this be generative for this community? What kind of follow-up can there be? How can I collaborate with journalists and newsrooms that are on the ground all the time? What does that look like? That starts to shift that extraction to being really relational. Let me just say, finally, we do see reporting that does that, I take it. You mm-hmm. know, we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a movement we want to see, but it's not like it hasn't started yet. This is work that's ongoing. Absolutely. So in terms of folks who are doing the work, there are also folks who are producing resources for journalists to use, correct? Yes. The organization... Press On has created a guide for journalists on reporting on protesting. Right now, City Bureau, the organization up in Chicago, has created some resources for journalists to reimagine how they cover crime and criminal justice more broadly. And then Free Press is also distributing some more resources throughout the week and has been throughout the past few weeks to help reporters and journalists who are thinking about ways to shift their reporting right now. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Alicia Bell, organizing manager with the group Free Press. They're online at freepress.net. Thanks very much, Alicia Bell, for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. 
Donald Trump has done so many high-profile egregious things as president, building a wall on the Mexican border, calling white supremacists very fine people, and trying to ban Muslims from the country, that it can distract from other behind-the-scenes harms his administration is enacting. Importantly, harms that will outlast his presidency. At the top of that list, judges. Indeed, this week, the Senate ignored numerous issues, but did vote to confirm Federalist Society member John Badalamenti as federal judge in Tampa, Florida. That makes him Trump's 197th judicial appointment, appointments that last a lifetime. Particularly as some look to courts to protect us from the outrages of the Trump White House, it's critical to see how this putative check on executive power can be turned against that mission and to name the names of those doing it. That's what People for the American Way are doing with Confirmed Judges, Confirmed Fears, a blog series and database of Trump-appointed judges and the impacts they're having. We're joined now by People for Senior Fellow Elliot Mintzberg. He joins us by phone from Maryland. Welcome to Counterspin, Elliot Mintzberg. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, if we could first spend a minute on the project itself. Confirmed Judges, Confirmed Fears is a blog series, but it's also a searchable database. What's in it, and and how would you hope that folks would use it? What is in the database and in the blog entries are a series of posts focusing on decisions involving Trump judges who are on the appellate courts, not the district courts, but the courts one step below the Supreme Court, where most of the critical legal decisions are made, and, of course, the Supreme Court itself. And what we've looked at are all cases where there's a difference of opinion among those judges. So that, for example, a case where a Trump judge has written a majority opinion, but there's a strong dissent, sometimes, frankly, even by other Republican judges, or a case where the majority has issued one decision, but a Trump judge dissents and wants to take the law even further to the right. And what you can find on this database are pretty much a description of all of such cases other than those that relate to issues like one corporation versus the next, cases that relate to discrimination issues, environmental issues, conflicts as to presidential power, you name the issue, you'll find it there. And what you will find is just how extreme the Trump judges are. Well, let's talk about some examples that illustrate the impact that a judge can have. I know that you've just written about the role federal judges can play in, well, here's the thing, police accountability. It's straight out of today's headlines, but frankly, the Trump judges were there before the recent headlines started. There's a doctrine that's been referred to called qualified immunity, in which courts sometimes rule that a police officer is immune from a lawsuit for damages, no matter how severe their misconduct may be. And we have documented cases where police shot an unarmed person in the back, literally arrested a young African-American man for doing nothing more than going to a white suburban shopping center and looking for space heaters on a cold winter night. Another case where a young man was shot, fled to his father's yard, then was tased and died as a result. 
in just about all of these cases, you have Trump judges who wind up casting the deciding votes to rule that there should be absolutely no liability for these police for this incredible misconduct. And that is something that needs to change. Congress, I know, is considering legislation on the issue. Frankly, what really needs to change is getting judges in who appreciate the need for appropriate accountability with respect to the police. Well, one Trump-appointed judge whose name folks will know, I really appreciate the database because it it calls up folks in cases that you won't have heard of, but one judge that folks will know about is Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, and also deeply relevant right now. He just wrote this kind of strange dissent, pushing for an exception for churches to be able to stay open in the pandemic. What was striking to you there? Well, what is really striking about that and other cases involving the pandemic, which is another area where Trump judges have shown their stripes recently, was most of the time Trump judges have been very supportive of government action during the pandemic, even when that action takes away individual rights and is very harmful. For example, in just about in every case where Trump judges have voted in the lower courts, they have ruled or tried to rule to sustain restrictions on abortion, even though the medical evidence is quite clear that there's no good reason, there was no good reason to do that. In this case, the issue related to a, a church, a mega church in California, that wanted to have a large church service with many people shoulder to shoulder, clearly risking serious spread of the pandemic. And the lower court and the Supreme Court basically upheld what the state California was doing. But Brett Kavanaugh wrote a dissent joined by the other Trump justice, Gorsuch, as well as by Clarence Thomas, that said this was improper, that the church should have been allowed to meet, maybe do a little social distancing, but should have been allowed to do that. And in fact, there was a similar situation in the Court of Appeals, where again, the majority ruled for California, but another Trump judge filed a dissent arguing against. So COVID-19 is yet another from the headlines example of how Trump judges are showing just how extreme they are. And John Roberts took apart that Kavanaugh dissent and found what seemed like some pretty basic flaws in it. And I'm also thinking about the election eve ruling the Supreme Court made that forced Wisconsin to hold their in-person primary. Kavanaugh's position just seems, you know, just seems kind of dumb, like beyond ideology. It just seems like bad lawyering. There are evident mistakes, you know, that you can pick out. And I Well, I, I, I do agree with you. I think you can pick out the evident mistakes, but there's no question that ideology is motivating that. Unfortunately, in the Wisconsin case, John Roberts went along with Kavanaugh and the other right-wing justices. So in that case, it was a majority, and there were tens of thousands of individuals in Wisconsin who who couldn't cast their vote or who had to risk infection in order to do it in person. And some of them, in fact, have gotten infected, as subsequent reports show. But again, what we see from President Trump's nominees to these powerful courts of appeals and the Supreme Court is a consistent 
right-wing ideology, frankly, going further even than some Reagan and Bush appointees. There are numerous examples where the dissenters have not been just Democratic appointees, but Republican appointees who have said, these guys are going way too far in distorting the law in a way that helps big corporations, helps the powerful, and hurts the ordinary person. Well, it's not part of the project per se, but you've had a long career in government and the law, and I can't help but ask your thoughts on the country's top lawyer, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr. Does his behavior look to you like a guy fighting for a particular vision of law that he supports or something else? I think Attorney General Barr is a disgrace. I remember, frankly, because I was working in the area when he was Attorney General under the first President Bush, where he was further to the right than Bush wanted to be. Now he's found a president who is willing to push, as far as he will, his extreme views on presidential power, on limiting the authority of Congress to help protect the American people, as they've tried to do. And Barr, I think, is nothing short of a disgrace to the office that he holds. He's refused to testify recently in front of the House Judiciary Committee. There are scheduled to be hearings involving a whistleblower or two from the Department of Justice. I strongly recommend people tune into that. The only reason we don't spend more time on Barr is because we don't want to divert attention from just how terrible Trump has been. But he has quite a partner in, in Bill Barr as Attorney General. Well, finally, confirmed judges, confirmed fears, which is searchable by judge or by issue, the database. It seems like a terrific resource for reporters. Is there any role for the public here besides awareness of the role that these federal judges play? Absolutely. In addition to awareness, it's important to take a look at what has happened with respect to judges that your own senators have voted for. We've worked with groups in Iowa to do an ad focusing on Joni Ernst, for example, and indicating some of the terrible decisions by judges that she's voted for and what that means for the future. And I think people can essentially do the same themselves to look up by judge, by issue, and then question their senators, question the president, question others. What are you doing? Why are you continuing to confirm these folks? There are several up right now that may be voted on soon in the Senate that are right out of the Trump Federalist Society playbook, I think people should do everything they can based in part on this tool and other work to oppose the confirmation of those judges. We've been speaking with Elliot Minsberg, Senior Fellow at People for the American Way. You can find Confirmed Judges, Confirmed Fears on their website, pfaw.org. Thank you very much, Elliot Minsberg, for joining us today on Counterspin. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the national media watch group FAIR, based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.